Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, November 7th, 2005. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Robert Trug, M.D., Professor of Medical Ethics and Pediatric Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School, Children's Hospital, Boston. Dr. Trug is the author of an article in the December 2005 issue of Critical Connections entitled Pediatric End of Life, Special Needs for Special Patients. This area of critical care medicine can often be a particularly difficult and emotionally challenging issue for the healthcare professional and has been a major focus of Dr. Trug's academic career. He will be providing an audio companion to that article on today's iCritical Care podcast. Good morning, Robert. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you, Richard. Well, again, thank you so much for spending some time with this new way of keeping in touch with the members of SCCM. We'd like to begin by having you tell us a little bit about your personal background in working with end-of-life issues in the pediatric critically ill patient and what drew you initially to this topic. Well, I think like uh, many people who go into intensive care medicine, I was initially drawn to the intensity of the medicine itself and being able to take care of the sickest patients on the planet and having to really understand cutting-edge medicine across a number of different specialties. But as I got more into the practice itself, I realized that there was another way that uh, critical care medicine is intense, and that is in the relationships that we have with our patients and the families. Since for these people, this is uh, for them sometimes the, the worst experiences that they're ever going to go through, the most intense experiences that they're ever going to go through in their lives, and uh, the, something that they're going to remember uh, for as long as they live. And um, uh, I, I've always been impressed that, you know, sometimes families will come back and see me several years after being in the ICU. And often they will have forgotten uh, most of what went on medically, certainly all of the details of what went on medically. But I'm struck how frequently they can recall certain things that were said to them, sometimes being able to give it back uh, word by word, almost verbatim. And uh, the relationships that they had, those are the things that stick with people for years afterwards. And I became interested in that. I became interested in the interpersonal aspects of what was going on in the intensive care unit. And uh, many of those reflected uh, deep ethical issues. And so early in my career, I actually took a couple of years off and uh, got advanced training in philosophy and medical ethics at Brown University and at Harvard University. And that kind of set the trajectory of my uh, academic career since then. 
And your your uh, just uh, for discussion purposes, your background is board certification in pediatrics, anesthesia, and pediatric critical care medicine. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. So I'm boarded in in all three of those specialties. But your major focus now is a combination of pediatric critical care and medical ethics. Is the medical ethics both in adult and pediatrics, or primarily in pediatrics? Yes, the, uh, my interest in medical ethics has expanded, and I'm now director of clinical ethics at Harvard Medical School. So. I do a large amount of the teaching uh, that goes on in ethics for the medical students as well as across the postgraduate educational spectrum with residents and fellows. And uh, I remember in in doing my prep for this and and somewhat along the lines of the article you wrote, um, it seemed that there were some issues where it it genuinely was more complicated in, in pediatrics than in adults. And I was wondering if you might address at least a couple of those issues sort of that are the major ones for you. I know you've talked about some of those in your article, but perhaps give some a uh, bit of a personal perspective on that if you could. Sure. Well, maybe to, to kind of contrast it a little bit to uh, the adult intensive care world, uh, one of the biggest differences is, of course, numbers. Um, we have relatively few children who are dying fortunately, thank God, uh, compared to what goes on in the adult world. So in a very big and busy ICU like mine, we have one to two deaths a week, um, which, you know, for an adult ICU would be a very, very small number. But to contrast with with the small numbers is the intensity of that experience. And again, while I don't work in that environment, I can easily imagine that Many of the deaths that occur in the ICU are of elderly men and women who have come to the natural end of a long and good life, and those deaths can be seen as as natural and and in a way as as, uh, the way that things should be. But um, in pediatrics, of course, that's never the case. I mean, we can never say that the death of a child is a natural thing, and especially the death of someone before their parents is kind of out of the natural order. And uh, so while we do strive to make these good deaths in a sense, or, or perhaps it would be best to say uh, a least worst death for these families, in a very deep way they're never a good thing, and they're always extremely painful. What are some examples that you would take from your life, both as a pediatric intensivist and as a researcher, an academic researcher in ethics and end-of-life issues in pediatric patients, that has been surprising to you when you've delved into, delved into the details of doing a, a formal academic research study on medical ethics in children. Uh, how has that helped you sort of solidify uh, some of your understanding of these issues? Well, I think that one area is the way that decisions are made uh, with critically ill children in comparison to adults. On the one hand, we're at an advantage in pediatrics because we almost always have loving parents to work with who are very involved in the lives of of their children, obviously care very deeply about their interests. Um, And it's it's different uh, oftentimes for the elderly where an intensivist may be working with family members who are not very close to the patient or in some cases don't even have any family members to work with at all. So, So that's a good thing about what we do. What makes it difficult, though, is the intensity of the interdependence in families with children, in that there's no decisions that are made for one member of that family that don't affect other members of that family in profound ways. 
and it's complicated how to how to tie those into decision making. One of the most interesting ethically to me is whether the interests of other members of the family should be allowed to play a role in how decisions are made for the patient. Rather than just the parents or a straightforward decision about uh, this patient is so sick that at this point support should be withdrawn. I just want to restate the issue you mentioned, which I did also glean from looking over a lot of your papers, that you may have a, uh, a child with significant traumatic brain injury and then the issue comes up of do you have a an entire life that maybe as far as all the uh, pediatric intensivists are aware will have a very poor quality of life uh, and there may be conflict as to whether or not this is sort of a life that is worth continuing where you're aware of the sort of many years of suffering ahead. Is that sort of a reasonable assessment of that? Yes, you have it exactly. Um, one of the uh, things that makes this work so so difficult is that every decision is multiplied by the number of years that a child might potentially live, which of course can be decades. And so we're slow to give up in situations where we think a child might have a chance to survive because if, if they do and make a full recovery as they, as they often do, we've given them a whole lifetime, literally decades to live. Uh, but similarly, the downside is is that when we have survivors that don't have good outcomes, that survive with profound disabilities, they can also live for a very, very long time and at huge uh, emotional and psychological and financial cost to their families. So, so those, the, all of those decisions are magnified, yes. And, uh, and the question is, uh, how, do you, how do you work with, with families to make those kinds of decisions? And, and it seems like, again, uh, quoting some of your recent uh, publications that the perspective of various healthcare providers will be different when those kinds of questions are asked and need to be answered. Is that is that correct? Well, yes, of course. And uh, I think that uh, first of all, we all bring our own uh, values and uh, beliefs to the table, as we should. Uh, that's part of the decision making process. And families are different. You know, uh, consider a, a family who is maybe um, dealing with. An only child uh, has no financial concerns. Their decision might be that uh, they can continue to care for a child easily that has severe disabilities. What about, though, a family who has perhaps many other children and uh, has severe financial limitations? For them, having a child with severe disability may mean that their other children will have uh, many lost opportunities. Do we allow those kinds of considerations to come into the decision-making process, or do we try to be more pure about it and say, no, that decision just must be based solely on what's in the best interest of the patient? Those are some of the unanswered ethical questions that we have to struggle with, which are very interesting to me at both a theoretical as well as a practical level. And from an ethical standpoint, you know, as a, as a full-time practicing intensivist, it's made somewhat easier for me since there are, as, as you point out in many of your articles, there are recommendations from national societies as what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, the doctrine of double effect, making sure that patients are comfortable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, even from looking over your papers, it seems like, uh, is there an ethical structure that you can start to apply to say what is right and what is not when, when you have these very complex matrices being involved? Like you said, a financial issue of supporting someone who may be uncomfortable conscious for years and years and years. How does someone like you with your background help give structure and framework to those of us who may not have your expertise on ethics? 
Well, that's a great question, and of course, that's really been, uh, in many ways, the focus of my career, because there aren't easy answers to that question. There's, there isn't a single agreed-upon um, ethical framework for arriving at the answers. I alluded to one of the big splits in the sense that the standard teaching is that doctors should care only about the best interest of the patient and should try to isolate the patient's interests from the interest of others, like the family, society, financial interests. Many people are beginning to think that that's a naive view, that none of us live an atomized, isolated existence. We're embedded in a society and that the decisions must take into account the interests and preferences of those that we live with, as well as the, the big, the big uh, issues in society, um, the financial ones being most prominent. And I assume um, my experience in adult is the more you get the courts involved, the more uh, unsatisfying and unhappy almost all parties involved become. I assume these sorts of issues with pediatrics are the same. The more you can keep it between physicians and families and patients, the, the better it seems to go. Or maybe you can word that better than I can. I don't think there's necessarily a deep conflict between the practice of medicine and the practice of law or, or our system of law. I mean, I think that there's an interesting relationship between the two, and we certainly do look to the law for broad guidelines about how we should practice. But the truth is... With that the recent comes, exception of the Terry Schiavo case, which I believe <laughs> the, quite well, strongly Terry Schiavo showed... Terry was a good example about why we need to have a good separation there. Right. Sorry to interrupt about that. Um, my experience of, of how the law impacts my practice is that for a great many of the decisions that we have to make in intensive care medicine, the law is relatively silent about what is the right or the wrong choice. And in, in fact, if you look over, uh, over the last several decades, I think my view of it is that the law has actually looked to how we practice. What are the decisions that doctors and families are making in the intensive care unit um, and then, when some cases come to the courts, they say, well, you know, this, this looks to me how doctors and, and families have been working it out. I think that that's the best way we should look at the law, too. And so I think that the law actually kind of lags behind what our practices are and, and largely validates that practice. So I don't see as much of a conflict between the two um, as, as some others do, except when the situations become politicized, as they did in the Terry Schiavo case, and then things just go completely haywire. Right. One other area, again, from reading some of your recent papers that I wanted to hope to discuss with you is that in your, one of your recent surveys in pediatric end-of-life issues, when you surveyed clinicians, not all of whom were intensivists, not all of whom were even, there was nurses, physicians, different types of physicians, there was more of a concern of prolonging suffering in some pediatric critically ill situations rather than stopping too soon. And uh, as someone, as a non-pediatrician, I would have thought the concern would be the other way, that, you know, the, that the major, you would want to err on the side of not stopping too soon rather than what seems to be the actual concerns are that there is prolonged care that may not be benefiting anyone in particular. And this seemed to be a theme in, in some of your papers, and I was wondering if you could expand upon that, uh, that issue. You know, one of the consequences of, of the fact that a decision to withdraw life support and allow a child to die has, has it, it's, it's always a tragedy, it's always a loss, it's the loss of many, many lives, um, sorry, many, many years of what uh, uh, everyone was hoping for to be a normal life. We're all very slow to make that decision. And yet, uh, I think 
many of us who practice in critical care believe that that bias comes at a huge price in that for the children who unfortunately don't survive, who do die with intensive care, many times they do so after a very prolonged uh, period of time in the intensive care unit, which is potentially associated with an awful lot of pain and suffering, not only for the child but also for the family. And and so there's a there's an ambivalence that comes up. I think that uh, none of us want to let a child go too soon, and yet um, we also worry that in many cases, looking back, we keep going much longer than we should have. And again, looking back at some of those deaths, you think, you know, it would have been less painful for everyone if we could have brought ourselves to stop sooner. And yet that's difficult. It's difficult to do with families who are hoping for survival, and it's difficult to do even for ourselves. Another area where it's similar to adults, but again, asking an ethicist like yourself why there seems to be so much difficulty making sure that people understand this area, and that's this concept that ethically and morally withdrawing a treatment is okay, is the same as not having started it in the first place. But from a family standpoint and oftentimes from a clinician standpoint, it seems like a much larger thing to do to say, well, we've we tried to give a course of, of pressors and the patient isn't getting better. We'd like to stop them. And um, I know you reemphasized again how the national medical societies emphasize this moral, that there should not be a moral and that there is not a legal distinction. But I was wondering if you could share with the members of SCCM again addressing the issue that this is, in fact, seems different at the, at when, the, you know, when the rubber meets the road, but why fundamentally it shouldn't be seen as something different, if you can help with that. Right. This is uh, um, actually one of the uh, textbook controversies in bioethics that typically is stated as the distinction between withholding a treatment or withdrawing a treatment. And as you point out, uh, legally and ethically, there's not thought to be a, a difference between the two, but in practice, there's a huge difference. And the best example is perhaps with mechanical ventilation, in that um, if there's a patient who has a serious disease, you can either make the decision that you're not going to put the patient on the ventilator and allow them to die from their lung failure, or you're going to put them on the ventilator, give them a trial, see how they do. If they do well, wonderful, then they're going to survive. But if they don't, then you've got to be faced with the decision to withdraw the ventilator and allow them to die. Now, the, the difference is, is that um, many people feel more comfortable with a decision not to put the patient on the ventilator in the first place because it feels like nature taking its course. It's leaving the decision to God in the, in the language that many people will use. Whereas if you put the patient on the ventilator and things don't work out well, then when you remove the ventilator, it feels very much like something that we are doing to the patient. At the extreme, it feels like we might even be killing the patient in that situation. We are making an action, taking an action, that is resulting in the patient's death. And for many people, that feels like killing. Now, the law and ethics would say there's no difference between the two and that we should be equally, equally willing to do either one, whatever is best for the patient. But those psychological feelings of moral responsibility are profound, and they lead people to be very reluctant to put patients on a ventilator if they think that they might be faced with having to remove it later. Have you had examples, or could you share with us some of your techniques to perhaps work with families and help share with them a statement like, 
that they are morally and ethically equal and that they've got the backing of some societies. What are some techniques that you personally use with the rest of your faculty to help make sure families understand some of these differences? Or that there aren't any differences, I apologize. Right. Well, um, first of all, it's it's the state that there are psychological differences and that it will be more difficult for us psychologically and emotionally if we put the patient on the ventilator and then have to remove it later. But more fundamentally, I think, is making it clear that if we don't give the ventilator a try, then we may miss an opportunity to actually make the patient better. We may miss a small but real chance that the patient may be able to respond and may be able to recover. But if we're going to give the patient that chance, we've got to be committed right from the beginning that if things don't work out, we've got to be willing to stop the ventilator later. Otherwise, we've, we've really left the patient stranded, and I think we've, we've, uh, we've abandoned the patient in a sense. Um, and so by understanding what the options are up front, by understanding that this is our one chance to perhaps save this patient's life, but if it doesn't work, we've got to understand what that's going to mean, and we've got to be willing to endure the psychological burden of stopping the ventilator when that time comes. I think that's uh, personally very helpful to make sure that you're able to share with the family that we're going to give it a trial, but understand that if it doesn't appear to be effective, there's no point in prolonging excessive suffering, which has to be a fundamental tenet at all times, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. We're sort of heading towards uh, towards the end of the interview, and uh, I wanted to make sure if you had any other particular personal thoughts that you wanted to share, either about the article you wrote or any other issues about pediatric end-of-life that you wanted to share with SCCM, you were more than welcome to do that at this point if you'd like. Well, let's see. Um, we, d- we didn't talk about tube feedings. Well, um, we sort of addressed the issue of um, stopping feedings. I, I know that, again, it's, it, it does have some overlap with this concept of not starting something in the first place, and I guess we, we can address that. So why don't we formally address that then? In, in one of your papers, you recently discussed regarding the issue of medically supplied nutrition and hydration. You did a survey, and you found that more than one-third of critical care attending physicians one-fourth of hematology-oncology attendings and greater than 40% of other subspecialty attending physicians, house officers, and nurses believe that medically supplied nutrition and hydration should always be continued. And um, again, where there's this disconnect between what national societies are recommending and what's actually happening out there, if you could comment on that. I think this is one of the most interesting areas where practice in pediatrics differs from the practice uh, in adults because it has become very common and and maybe even you could say routine with elderly patients when they are being fed typically through a feeding tube and have reached a point where their quality of life has become uh, extremely poor that we stop the tube feedings and allow them to die. And we recognize this as a very natural way to die and this practice has received support all the way up to the Supreme Court. And yet, It's very interesting. Pediatricians are almost never willing to do this. And I'm not exactly sure uh, why that's true. I can speculate that I think some of it has to do with uh, the practices in newborns. Because, of course, there is no newborn that is able to feed him or herself. Every newborn requires help with feeding. And, indeed, children require help with feeding up to, you know, through their toddler years. And so I think that the idea that um, patients need some help with feeding is very much a natural part of pediatrics. And so 
the idea that we would withdraw this just because a patient can't do it on their own is more difficult for pedi- pediatricians, whereas for, for internists and other adult physicians, uh, I think it comes much more naturally. I suspect that this is an area where eventually practices in pediatrics are going to change, but it's going to take a, a number of years. How often does something like the ethics committee of your hospital need to get involved in some of these end-of-life issues in the pediatric intensive care unit? We have a very active ethics committee, a very helpful ethics committee, and typically over, uh, over the years, by getting involved in some of the cases, we develop a shared understanding of the right way to handle certain cases so that not every case needs to go to the ethics committee. Many of these cases, uh, we feel like we've already talked through the issues thoroughly, and we have a good idea of where to go. That being said, I would say virtually every case that involves the withdrawal of tube feedings or artificial nutrition and hydration comes before the committee because of the difficulties that pediatricians have with those areas. And any, any kind of a, of a situation that is, that is unusual or, or new or different, we will definitely bring to the ethics committee. We will talk it through thoroughly. And then maybe the next time it comes around, we won't have to do that. But I think that there's a very active relationship between the Ethics Committee and the ICU. And, it, and that obviously helps to build some consensus, both with the doctors and the family, uh, in some of these very challenging cases, I would imagine. Yes, and consensus is so important. You know, um, the time that you take developing agreement between everybody who's involved in the case is time that is so well spent. Um, you know, you see situations where that doesn't occur where even if one person is upset with the way that things are going, it can have devastating effects on the morale of the unit. You know, in the worst case, somebody might decide to go to the newspaper or something like that, and, and, and then you've got a situation which is really out of control. And that seems to be an important theme to leave with the members of SCCM that certainly applies in adults, is, is building consensus in these challenging cases. Absolutely. We've had a a fantastic opportunity today to speak with Dr. Robert D. Trug, M.D. He's a professor of medical ethics and anesthesiology, pediatrics, at Harvard Medical School and a senior associate in critical care medicine at Children's Hospital Boston. Thank you very much, Dr. Trug, for spending some time with us today on the iCritical Care podcast. Thanks for this opportunity, Richard. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This concludes our podcast, recorded Monday, November 7th, 2005. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Masconi West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.
Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.